You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 30th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Researchers who are working on energy transition all too often find themselves with only part of the knowledge base they would need to really understand and solve many of the complex, interconnected problems that are typical of climate change and the challenges involved in transforming our energy system. Those who understand the technology from an engineering perspective may struggle with the challenges of changing the policy environment, and those who understand what works in the policy arena may not be equipped to evaluate the various technology options. Increasingly, researchers are realizing the need for a common framework and a common understanding of our energy and economic systems, and they're looking for ways to increase collaboration and to learn from other disciplines. At the same time, there's a problem of scale. There are lots of solutions that work at the small scale, but how they all work together or don't at a large scale, like a national or a global scale, requires a different way of looking at the world, one which depends more on an understanding of system dynamics than thermodynamics, if you will. There are all sorts of phenomena that arise from complexity and from complex systems that are not contemplated in the study of individual disciplines, and so these important phenomena are not really taught or properly researched. In an effort to encourage more informed and collaborative work across disciplines and at grand scales, a group of researchers at Stanford University recently proposed a new discipline they are calling macroenergy systems. Its goal is to grapple with the challenges of studying large-scale energy systems, focusing on phenomena that occur at large scales, over long time spans, large areas, and large-scale energy flows and to bring together a community of researchers who are better equipped to tackle the challenges of climate change and energy transition. All of which is, of course, music to my ears, so I had to invite one of the researchers involved in the effort to come on the show and tell us all about it. Dr. Sally Benson is a professor of energy resources engineering in the School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences, co-director at the Precourt Institute for Energy, and director of the Global Climate and Energy Project at Stanford University. Formerly, she held numerous positions at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. She is regarded as an authority on carbon capture and storage, and she uses energy systems analysis to help guide decisions about the most promising pathways for clean energy development. So I'm excited to have her join us to talk about this important new approach to research on energy transition. And at the end of this interview, for the first time on this show, we'll take a little dive into the state of carbon capture and sequestration technology. So you'll want to stick around for that. But before we get into the interview, I just want to take a moment here to welcome our latest group subscribers. So here's a big thanks to the Rocky Mountain Institute for taking a site license and making the show available to all of its employees, including me. to the Copenhagen School of Energy Infrastructure for taking a large group subscription, and to Dylan McConnell's class at the University of Melbourne and Morgan Bazilian's graduate public policy class at the Colorado School of Mines. Welcome all. We're so pleased to have you on board. 
Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll have another edition of the ever-popular Coal Death Watch. We'll ask whether shale gas production in the UK actually has a future, and we'll review some exciting details about offshore wind development in the North Sea. But first, our conversation with Sally Benson, recorded September 25th, 2019. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Sally, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thank you very much. So you're one of a group of Stanford researchers who have proposed a new academic discipline you're calling macro energy systems. And before we even talk about what that is, I'll ask an even more basic question. Why? (laughs) What problem is being (laughs) solved by creating a new discipline? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've been working on the energy transition really since about the year 2000. And the way I see it is that the energy transition is going to require massive investment in new infrastructure, just to name a few, renewable generation sources, new transmission lines, energy storage, batteries, hydrogen flow batteries, all kinds of things for transportation, you know, massive electric vehicle charging infrastructure, hydrogen stations, maybe a mix of electric vehicles and hydrogen. For industry, we're going to be redesigning processes to eliminate fossil fuel emissions. And there's a variety of approaches for doing that. And on top of all this, we're going to have much more ubiquitous telecommunications, automation and controls to make this whole system work that's much more interconnected than the system we have today. So that's sort of the starting point. Second thing is that All this infrastructure is going to require massive investments in earth resources, you know, copper, nickel, lithium, cobalt, steel, neodymium, just to name a few. And if we think about all these new resources, this is going to require large-scale mining. You know, we all know that mining has big impacts, associated land disturbance, socioeconomic changes associated with extractive industries and so forth. And there's still a big question, do we have enough of these resources? Where are they going to come from? And how are we confident they're going to be available in the future? And obviously, if they're not going to be available in the future, then that might change our pathway for what we decide to invest in. And another issue is, is what about end of life? You know, all of these solar panels and batteries and so forth will come into time when they no longer perform efficiently. And what are we going to do with them? Or will we recycle them? Are we going to put them in landfills? Can we start thinking about designing products with recycling in mind? And just as sort of another question, again, I know I'm going on, but to me, the why is very complex. And the other question is, what's the fastest way to decarbonize Speed and scale are crucial to limiting warming levels, sort of by my calculus that, you know, if we keep on emitting at our current rate, forget the fact that they might go up, we sort of have 30 years to sort this out before we're already committed to 2 degrees C. So how do we navigate all this complexity to get to the zero emissions as fast as possible? So... That's a long, complicated list, but finally one day it struck me, really the big question is, is how do we make good energy choices today, given the imperative to act and in light of all this complexity, and the stakes are really high. So that's when I began to start doing what I and many others in our team think of as macro energy systems analysis is how do you pull in multiple strands of information and optimization and data and so forth to answer this question, how do we make good energy choices? 
When I think about the word macro, I think about it maybe from the context of the financial lens, right? Like mm -hmm. think about economic growth rates, think about things like monetary policy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're thinking about here when you say macro energy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So energy systems integration is nothing new, you know, operations research. I mean, there's a whole field and capacity expansion models for the electric grid that kind of systems work has gone on. So I kind of think of that more as the micro level, where the degree of complexity and scale of integration is much smaller. So when I think of macro energy systems, I kind of think of it starting with a top-down framework, which is driven by things like economic development, associated load growth development, and from a societal level, how are we going to pay for all of these things? Gotcha. So macro as in large, not as in macroeconomic necessarily. Right. Right. Okay, cool. So what is this new macro energy systems discipline about? To me, I mean, let me say one thing. I think we're just at the very beginning of trying to define what this will be, and it certainly won't be up to me or our, our small team who developed this. What we would like to do is reach out to the broad community of people who are working in parts of this area and together shape what this field would become. But to me, there's sort of two key components about macroenergy systems. One, we need a conceptual framework for the energy transition. And we also need a set of quantitative tools that will allow you to explore these contexts in terms of, again, optimization and so forth. So simply put, if the tagline I see for this is the, sort of the science of the energy transition, you know, again, concepts and, and quantitative frameworks. Mm. So just to make that perhaps a little richer, so if you think about some of the important concepts or principles – one example would be maximizing net energy. So the idea of net energy is that every time you build an energy conversion device, like a solar panel or a battery or a coal plant, whatever, takes a certain amount of energy to build that. And a good energy investment is one that has very high returns on that energy. So maximizing net energy would be one concept of principle that would be important to evaluate decisions about future energy investments. I love that. We've done a couple of episodes on net energy and on EROI and life cycle analysis and that kind of thing. So our longtime listeners are certainly familiar with that idea. Mm -hmm. But I love the idea that you're actually making that sort of like a research focus here. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's part of it. The second one is, of course, life cycle assessments and sustainability assessments. So sort of the discipline of life cycle assessment around perhaps energy and water and materials is rather well developed, but, but that needs to broadly reach out into the full set of issues around sustainability, land use, socioeconomic impacts, and so forth. So, right. so that's another important one is maximizing the, the benefits to society as a whole. And then the final one is really systems integration and optimization. Today, when people compare options for reducing emissions from the energy sector, everyone loves to use a metric like levelized cost of electricity, say from a PV panel or from a wind turbine. Right. But in reality, a system that delivers 24-7, 365 reliability is not just going to be a solar panel or a solar panel and a battery. It's going to be a very complex system with a certain amount of PV and a certain amount of wind and a certain amount of hydro, geothermal, whatever. It's going to vary from place to place. Right. And what we need to look at is full system costs and 
it's not going to be possible to make good energy choices unless we understand how the whole system can fit together. So that's another important principle. I love it. There's a lot of integrative thinking there then. Mm -hmm. It's different from the one energy technology at a time kind of a thinking. Right. And I just think that's so, so important because what I really worry about is that we go so fast down one pathway that we stall. And, you know, we want to avoid that stall and diversification. I guess if I had to add another principle, diversification would be a very important component of that as well. Yeah. So just to keep making this as concrete as possible, this concept, how might the macro energy field approach a research question like the need for energy storage three decades from now? And I bring that example up because it's something that a lot of researchers are looking at right now. And I think that it's the kind of question that you're that you're after here that requires sort of an understanding of the whole system and how all the pieces will fit together and how the system will evolve over 30 years. And some research will look at it from the perspective of, well, here's the trends that we have now, here are the costs that we have now, let's just project those forward for 30 years. But of course, we know that the rate of innovation and change in this space is so rapid that that's not really meaningful to do it that way. And so you need to have some way to accommodate new choices, new technologies, things that you can't anticipate. So how would the macro energy system approach to that question treat of it differently than researchers are looking at it today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a really complicated one, which is why I yeah. why I really like it. But maybe I'll just back up a little tiny bit to say a little bit about some of the quantitative framework that is needed to answer the kind of question. And then I'll get back directly to your question. Okay. So there are multiple ways from macroenergetic systems, you could approach this. So you can pick the simplest system and you'd say, okay, well, let's have solar panels plus battery. And, you know, ask a question, well, is it better, should everybody putting on solar panels, should they put a battery in their house? Or is it better to sell the power back to the grid? And instead of asking this from a purely financial question perspective, you could ask it from an environmental perspective, for example, like net energy. So that's a really simple example. And there's actually papers, mine and others that do that. You can also ask the question, what's better, hydrogen or batteries for energy storage? Right. And there are multiple perspectives on that. One is you can ask the question, well, what's cheapest? You can ask the question, what's going to do the best job for reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Or you could ask what's more reliable and so forth. So again, there are tools that you can develop, basically systems models, uh, varying complexity to ask that. And then sort of getting into a more complex set of tools that in reality, the storage question is best placed in the context of what is the lowest cost combination of wind, solar, hydropower, some kind of dispatchable generation to provide electricity to California or the West. Mm -hmm. And there are models now available and different models, not just one set of models, that there are tools of macroenergetics. So you could ask that question looking just inside the California system boundaries That might be one perspective. Another perspective you could say is, well, you know, in reality, in the future, we know from similar studies that integrating the grid over a very broad area can minimize the need for energy storage. So if you, for example, can integrate the whole Western grid, all of a sudden, just because California doesn't have any renewable energy, well, maybe it's in Arizona or Colorado or, or West Texas or something. 
So there are tools now, mathematical models that can answer that question. And just another example, hydrogen is potentially available for very large-scale energy storage. But there's a big question of the chicken and the egg problem. It's expensive compared to other options, and you need to get to scale. So how could you deliberately build out a hydrogen energy infrastructure that would support simultaneously decarbonization of industry, commercial and residential heating, and provide large-scale energy storage for the grid. Now, that's a pretty complicated problem. But again, you could build a model that would help you answer that question. So those are the kind of tools that are available. So maybe getting back to this issue of the storage in the grid and how much and what kind. So specifically, we've been doing this work in California, And the question is, well, where do you start? So the kind of tools, which I'm sure you've talked about on your show, are traditional capacity expansion models, which were designed to answer the question, my load is growing and I need to add more generation. Where should I add it? And how big should the plant be? And how much will the capital and variable costs be? What would be the optimal? So you do that. Okay. But now all of a sudden we want to add in renewable generation, which is variable. Sun is really simple. It shines in the day. It doesn't at night. Wind is highly variable over the course of the year. Again, as is solar. Hydro is variable and so forth. So those traditional models of capacity expansion really weren't designed at all for this because you really need to understand how you're going to dispatch all that generation on an hourly or less basis over that full year period. So now what we need is a model that integrates capacity expansion and dispatch. So we've already added a level of complexity there. So then what about land use? Okay, every place you go for one reason or another, be it cultural, be it economic, be it from ecosystem services, that land is valuable. And so will there be enough land? And where exactly is that land available? And where is it relative to existing transmission lines? Or will we have to build brand new ones? So you need to factor that in. You know, one of the things that I think about when I think about this question of how much storage we'll need in the future is just how many different kinds of storage there are, right? And how they're all useful for sort of different things. Lithium-ion batteries, we all know, are beginning to see them used in lots of applications from electric vehicles to grid power storage. And they provide a lot of different kinds of services there from sort of instantaneous frequency and voltage regulation services to just energy supply over hours hours or minutes. But there's also things like flywheels that do a very good job of grid power modulation. There are hydro, which does things for hours or days at a time. There are thermal energy storage systems, which I think are probably going to become a significant part of the future energy mix, even though they're not really a player now. So I wonder, how does the macro energy systems approach help us understand the role that all these different kinds of storage systems might play? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way I see storage technologies and systems is that they basically fill in where everything else doesn't. So one of the approaches you can use from macroenergy systems is you can take these same models that I've been describing that do integrated capacity expansion, dispatch, and so forth, and you can sort of solve an inverse problem that basically answers the question, well, what kind of storage do I need? 
you know, if I have this portfolio of generation and this is my load profile looked at over 365 days a year, how do I fill that in? And the answer to that question is going to be highly different if depending upon whether you're in Florida or Alaska or California or Africa. Mm. But you can take all of that geographically specific data, socioeconomically specific data, and and what you're going to find is that there's going to be a certain amount of storage that you want for, say, peaking. You know, every day there's a peak in electricity demand. So you can then say, okay, well, the ideal attributes of this peaking are three and a half hours power output that's sort of... 25% of the maximum generating capacity of the system. That's just hypothetical, but you'd find that out. But at the same time, I noticed that it's not unusual to have 10 cold, foggy days with no wind during the middle of the winter. And you can say, okay, well, what kind of storage do I need that would provide that service? And mm -hmm. that's going to be something entirely different. You know, mm -hmm. That might be large-scale hydrogen storage, or that might be synthetic fuels that you've reduced CO2 and hydrogen to make synthetic hydrocarbons from renewable energy. Maybe that's what you can do. So you can come up with answers like that. But what you really want to also do, it's really that next step where I think macroenergy systems has real value is it says, okay, but you don't want to have to buy one storage system for peaking and one for those 10 cold days, 10 dreary days. California is a great example. In the wintertime, our power demand is about half what it is in the summer. So how do you design a system that provides that full summer power, but at the same time meets your winter power? So trying to figure out which of those storage technologies or combination of storage technologies can provide more than one service so that they end up being used a lot of time in the year. Because one of the big problems with a renewable-dominated grid is you end up investing in many assets that might be used only infrequently. And if you use things infrequently, all of a sudden the costs shoot up because you're trying to amortize the cost over a very small number of operating hours, for example. So macro energy systems can kind of tease out what are those kind of storage technologies that will be most useful to serve multiple uses and have a real case of being economically viable. Yeah, that's a great answer. So what do you think the key thing is that's different about macro energy as opposed to how these issues have been taught up until now? Is it mainly the fact that it's a more deliberately integrated approach than other sort of cross-disciplinary or interdisciplinary programs that have already existed? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think interdisciplinary is on the pathway to forming a new discipline. So I think we provide some examples of the paper of geophysics as an example. So there was geology hmm. and there were physicists. And at one point, physicists started working on geological problems, for example, figure out what the structure of the earth is. And then once they started doing that, they said, oh, well, gosh, now I can do earthquake seismology. And oh, I can picture what happens when I do fracking, how that breaks rocks. So a whole new field of geophysics gets born. There's biogeochemistry would be another example where 
people came to realize that biological organisms, that the crust of the earth is filled with these organisms that actually play an incredibly role in the, the chemical processes, which then have feedbacks to the physical processes. So at first, again, it was maybe a biologist working in, in geochemistry, and, and then it's somebody working in chemistry looking at biology, and then finally it's like, oh no, there is this really integrative discipline that deserves to stand out on its own. So that's why I see, you know, macroenergy systems as sort of something that's evolving. And just to be totally clear, there are lots of people who do what we would call macroenergy systems research today. And many of the major research universities have one of these people. Maybe they're located in mechanical engineering or aeroastro or electrical engineering or operations research or in an energy resources department. Or they could be in an economics department. And the challenge is that if you're embedded in an economics department, your peers are going to expect you to use the tools, concepts, and norms of those disciplines. Right to work on that problem. So now you've got someone in economics, someone in electrical engineering. Well, they're really doing the same kind of problems, but they use different words to describe everything. They use different conventions, different definitions, so that they don't have a good way to get together and Disciplines really progress when you have multiple people sort of working in them, building off of each other's work, making advances, figuring out, well, what may be the shortcomings and let's make an advance. But if you're speaking in a different language, it's very hard to get that kind of synergy and progress. So macro energy systems would take all of these sort of one-off people who have been distributed broadly in these systems and try to create more of a critical mass that could be more reliably used by policymakers, I think is a key thing. You know, I think policymakers are sort of bombarded with information from vendors who have particular products, with advocacy organizations who have one preferred pathway or another, right. and then academics. They don't know what to have any confidence in. Right. And so we need them to be able to be more confident. And students need to understand, well, if I go in this discipline, you know, what's my career pathway? Where am I going to end up? Mm. What's my community? So I think those are some of the things we're trying to achieve. Well, that is an interesting lead into what my next question was going to be, which is what are the benefits that we might expect to derive from this new discipline? And it sounds to me mm -hmm. like you're expecting it to produce some sort of a new lingua franca, or at least a common basis for understanding things across multiple disciplines. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if we look at teaching in this area, there's no standard textbook that people are provided with. So no. when you say, oh, I'm using a Kaya identity approach to answer this question, people look at you and go, well, what's that? <laughs> and similarly, all of these different things. So we really need to be able to have a pedagogy around this. We need textbooks. There are no technical societies. So a lot of my students work in this area, and you get a paper done, and the question is, well, where do you publish it? Well, okay, well, maybe this is about building heating systems. And it's like, okay, well, let's find the people who work on building heating systems. And then you're in a meeting, and you're trying to talk about things like carbon-aware scheduling or demand response programs, and they're looking at you like, well, why do we exactly care about that? 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items, starting with another edition of Cold Death Watch. Item 1. China's energy regulator has ordered a total of 8.7 gigawatts of obsolete coal-fired power plants to be shut by the end of this year to help curb smog and greenhouse gas emissions. The order, which will affect about 1% of the country's total capacity, applies to all coal-fired power units under 50 megawatts in size, plus some units up to 100 megawatts which are located in regions covered by large-scale power grids. Some environmental groups estimate that there are still more than 200 gigawatts of new coal-fired capacity planned or under construction, and the China Electricity Council, which represents the country's power industry, predicts that an additional 300 gigawatts could be built eventually. But as we learned in our conversation with Tim Buckley in episodes 91 and 93, there is no way to know how often new plants will actually run once they're built, and there is good reason to believe that many of the planned units will never be built, now that wind and solar are oftentimes cheaper alternatives. Item 2. According to an analysis by e and News, many coal-fired power plants in the U.S. are running less and less often, suggesting that while they may not yet be scheduled to close, chances are good that they will sooner rather than later. In North Carolina. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.